Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, Dr. Rachel Gross, an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, speaks at the Outdoor History Summit about her time in the Outdoor Recreation Archive, as well as her research on the history of big box and specialty retail in the outdoor industry. Chase and... Clint have been great partners to me over the last few years. So I'm delighted to share a bit about the research that I did when I was visiting the collections a few months ago. So I'll start by talking about my experience at the Outdoor Recreation Archive and what I found there. And then I'll zoom out to talk about my research on the history of the outdoor industry more broadly. And I'd be very happy to answer questions about both of those. I am planning to share the screen. So hopefully all our tech is in line to be able to do that in just a moment. The outdoor press in the 21st century likes to harken back to a golden age of the industry where independent mountain shops outfitted a generation of outdoorsmen. Reporter Daniel Duane's 2017 telling in Outside Magazine is a good example of this. Before Amazon and big box stores eviscerated brick and mortar retail, he wrote, there were small mountain shops all over the West. Now, this telling might sound quite familiar to many of you. Um, it certainly was familiar to me as somebody who grew up in the American West and visited one of these small mountain shops. For manufacturers in the same era, um, the narratives were quite similar. Either you were specialized and you sold to small shops or you weren't and you sold to the big boxes. The trajectory of some of the largest outdoor retailers of recent years highlights this narrative, the move toward the big box. Both Cabela's, a hunting and fishing store founded in Nebraska in 1961 and REI or Recreational Equipment Incorporated founded as a co-op in 1938 in Seattle, began as small family-run shops, but became behemoths of the industry by the end of the 20th century, a threat to Duane's small mountain shops as much as any Walmart. These stores were marked by large sizes and inventories. They could often manufacture house brand products, and they could undercut the prices of smaller stores. My goal in visiting the Outdoor Recreation Archive was to understand the evolution of retail at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, right? To understand what Duane was talking about when he lamented, oh, it used to be one way and now we've gone into this big box era. What I found is that forgotten in the narrative that he and many others tell was that there was spectacular, the spectacular growth of REI, Cabela's and other stores like it since the 70s is that what goes along with that is that Walmart was actually a part of the outdoor industry. More people bought camping goods at stores such as Walmart, Sears, Kmart, and Target 
than anywhere else. This matters because in the story of the end of specialized retail, that narrative, there is rarely this longer view of history where discount stores were actually central players in the equipment market since the middle of the 20th century. Walmart and its large format discount competitors matter to the outdoor industry's history, that history that we all care about, in two ways. First, despite being um, discounted in the outdoor press, it was part of the outdoor industry. Second, Walmart and other big box retailers influenced how the industry was structured. Um, a process that I call in this paper that I'm writing, Walmartization, explains how the outdoor industry at the end of the century grew its reach market and how it sold to mimic discount large-scale retailers, even as industry insiders shunned the comparison. So national chains that many of you know quite well, such as Bass Pro, Cabela's, Eastern Mountain Sports, and REI, all began to fit this big box model starting in the 1990s. Despite the folksy origin story that's so important to contemporary outdoor retailers, there is one story of economic progress that the industry likes even more, that the outdoors represents nearly 2% of GDP. This size is only possible because of the large-scale retailers. Essentially, the outdoor industry today is a product of the Walmartization of the economy, a reflection of the very of what the industry claims to despise. So the article that I'm writing now um, is about tracing the evolution of retail, and I turned to the Outdoor Recreation Archive at Utah State in order to understand how retailing had changed, but also what were the attitudes within the industry about these shifts going on. In the larger piece that I'm writing, I trace the origins of uh, big box stores to the post-World War II era, um, where uh, mass merchandisers began to spread and by the 1970s were booming. The 1980s saw the rise of the big box format for discount stores, and by the 90s, this was true for outdoor retailers as well. By the early 2000s, as many of us know, many outdoor chains were now clearly big boxes, right, both in size and in scale. But they often rejected that term for cultural reasons and strove to create a distinct experience from a place like Walmart. In each of these eras, I show, the core debate of the outdoor industry wasn't about what stuff they were selling, but rather who the outdoors was for. Affordable, mainstream, family, and beginner usually coincided with the term big box. Premium, athlete, adventure, expert, and expensive meant specialty. To understand the deep ambivalence about the big box label in the history of outdoor specialty retail, we have to look at this much longer history of the industry debating just who the outdoors is for. And that's how I used the Outdoor Recreation Archive to answer these questions. So I'll talk, I'll show you just a few of the um, uh, documents that I looked at over the course of my time there. I was especially um, uh, intrigued by the periodicals collection at the archive. So you get, if these might look familiar to you, uh, back from the photocopying days, uh, materials where um, I see uh, both uh, confirmed cases and rumors about what's going on in the industry, who sold out to whom, what's happening with different kinds of companies included in this kind of material. And here's another one of these um, news from a particular corporation. Um, concerns from within the industry about, oh no, this store or this retailer is about to start selling outdoor goods, right? And the concern was if Costco is selling high-end jackets, what does that mean for small shops like us? So I started to understand that there was a lot of concern about what the competition from these large-scale big box stores were. If Target was going to sell these goods, these backpacks, what does that mean for other small shops like A16? 
And besides the periodicals, I also use the uh, manuscript collections, including this one, to look at some of the um, official documentation from within the industry, uh, kind of reflecting on here's who our market is, here's how we understand what that market is comprised of, and here's who we hope to reach in coming years. Here too, in these sets of documents, I began to understand how the industry itself was approaching the shift in the retail landscape, right? What kinds of strategies they had for selling and who the new market might be. This is one of my favorite um, materials from the periodicals collection, the National Outdoor Outfitters News, um, of which the, the archive has a, a good set, um, was really useful because though I have been to archives that have materials related to the outdoor industry all over the United States, more than 15 different ones, none have this particular business magazine for the outdoors. And if we are trying to understand not just one particular brand, one particular company story, which I want to do all the time, but also those stories in a larger and national context, it's crucial to have access to materials that were dealing with that broad context from the time period. So I also looked when I was there at some of the materials from particular um, employees at particular companies. I find those really useful, right? It's great fun to get into the designs of a particular designer, things like that. However, for the question that I was asking for this article, which is about national attitudes within the industry about shifts in retail, documents like these were crucial. The result of this research on the, the changing landscape of retail will be a chapter that goes into a book that I'm editing on big box retail and environmental history. So other authors who are contributing to it are writing about um, places like Target Distribution Centers or the history of Walmart and I am, uh, or Bass Pro Shops. And I am situating this history of the shift in format for retail stores within this much larger trend in the United States and trying to tell a story of what this shows about our relationship to the environment. Um, that book is under press with the University of Colorado um, and it will be out in a couple of years. So stay tuned for that one. I did say, however, that I was talk a bit about my larger research project. Um, I am uh, the author of a book manuscript, soon to be a book, called Selling Nature, the Outer Industry in American History. And you can understand from that broad title that my interest in the late 20th century, early 21st century shift in retail sits in a much longer trajectory. So I'm not just interested in the Duane narrative of oh, I have nostalgia for the small mountain shop days of, I think the 1970s is what he's referring to there. In fact, this history goes back much further to the period after the Civil War, where I start to examine um, how um, the idea of getting back to nature, right, outdoor recreation itself, evolved with an industry and how that industry began to sell the notion of here's the right stuff to have to take with you. And here is the wrong stuff that's going to mark you as a beginner, as an outsider, as someone who doesn't really belong. So I look at particular kinds of um, goods, buckskin, for instance, um, uh, down sleeping bags in the middle of the 20th century, synthetics at the end of the 20th century. And I use those particular objects from particular companies usually to trace broader cultural trends, trying to understand how Americans' ideas about what they needed to stay safe and warm and dry in the woods changed over time and what they thought these goods reflected about their identities. Um, I'm happy to address questions um, both about this longer history, right? Like everywhere from 1865 to right about now, but also the history of the big box in general. So I'll go ahead and stop sharing my screen and pull up uh, questions from the chat. Um, 
Yeah. When will this be a book? <laughs> no longer a manuscript. Yeah. The book is under press with Yale University, uh, is under contract with Yale University Press. Um, and when it's in their hands, which it will be as of tomorrow, the timeline is actually up to them rather than up to me. I'm guessing in about a year. Um, so if you want to be first on the list to to book me to come to come talk about it to, to you and your colleagues, I'd be delighted to do so. I think um, the the arguments of the book that have to do with how the outdoors is marketed and what and how kind of different companies structured the work that they did in order to reach different sets of outdoor enthusiasts will be of great interest to people within the industry. So, uh, so I'd be delighted to talk more about that. Um, okay, so I'll address some of these questions here. Does classism play a part of the resistance to the Big Mucks narrative? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was describing the, the kind of short list of characteristics, um, family accessible, affordable on the one hand, and then expert adventure expensive on the other, I think that class is absolutely implicated there. Um, the um, Part of what's notable, though, is that class uh, is always coded as something different. So in other words, especially this notion of uh, people who are experts who need the most high-end stuff versus those who don't, right? Can you camp in a Coleman tent uh, that will blow away at high winds? Well, that matters very little if there aren't high winds and you're not on top of a mountain. Um, so I so I actually see class very much at play here, but rarely referred to directly. Um, next question. Um, what are the main shifts in the actual stuff being sold? Um, uh the what literature is available that shows the shift in consumer preferences in different product categories. Okay. So um, two different things here. Um, uh, there have been radical shifts in outdoor gear and clothing over the last 150 years, right? If you have been around for more than 10 years as a consumer yourself, you know this, right? The materials change, the designs change. However, the most important thing that I've found is that what shifted the most was not actually particular products as much as it was Americans' notions of what stuff they needed and why they needed it, right? The identity piece has proved to be far more crucial, except for the very expert athletes, and I would not count myself as one of those, um, th that the stuff doesn't quite matter as much as what people think that they can do with it and what it says about them. So yes, do, do uh, technologies change over time? Absolutely. I can trace some of those shifts, for instance, um, to uh, uh, military researchers in laboratories during World War II. Uh, many of the research laboratories used outdoor industry professionals like Eddie Bauer and L.L. Bean um, and Harold Hirsch as consultants to figure out, here's how we're going to design for this outdoor war. And then in turn, these outdoor professionals brought new technologies and designs of clothing and equipment back to them and to their production facilities um, across the United States. So I can look at changes in particular technologies. Where does the down come from? How do we make sure that down sleeping bags are warm to the right level and degree? And how do we test that? Those are specific changes that I um, trace in this book. Um, but the main shift in the products isn't less about the technology in this particular example and more about the accessibility. In other words, the key, the key story of down sleeping bags in World War II isn't the technology. It's the fact that Army surplus made them cheap and available, accessible to a large swath of Americans in the years that followed. <laughs> in other words, democratization through Army surplus is actually far more important than the technology itself. And so um, I continue to write about the stuff, but I'm really interested in what that shows about broader cultural attitudes. Um, how did Teddy Roosevelt affect the direction of what was considered outdoor products? Yeah, he's great. And he is uh, a big character in the first chapter that I have, which is on the history of buckskin. He's important because he does have a huge influence on the direction of the outdoor industry. 
He's most famous for his fringe buckskin suit that he eagerly posed in for frontispiece for various numbers of his um, books. Um, uh, Tales of Arrangement is a good example of this. Um, what's important and what I get into in that chapter, though, is that though guidebook authors at the time, and indeed Roosevelt himself, would have eagerly embraced buckskin as an example of rugged masculinity on the frontier, as evidence of the craft skill of these outdoorsmen who are doing something really important and being truly American when they're, when they're donning that outfit, that Roosevelt actually purchased his buckskin suit from a Native woman, as did most other outdoors men who are writing the guidebooks of the day. In other words, though nearly every guide said, if you want to be a real outdoors man, you, white consumer, must kill the deer and tan the buckskin yourself to make this suit. Otherwise, you're just going to have kind of a, a sad imitation of what this real outdoor outfit is. But Roosevelt and the guides themselves didn't do this work. They turned to Native women's expertise in order to have these outfits. And so Teddy Roosevelt is important, not just because he influenced the style, which he certainly did, but also because he helped to reinforce this mythology about um, men going off and doing everything themselves when it comes to equipping themselves for the outdoors, when his actions and those of his contemporaries belied that story. They did something really quite different, and that's important as well. My research does not cover outdoor cooking culture. I, I think that would just make it too big for me, but I'm so fascinated by the evolutions in technology there as well as people's changing tastes. So if someone else knows more about that and can write about it, I will be a very eager audience for that one. Um, I am not usually going to turn to other outdoor companies, except if I can kind of... So other outdoor companies, this question is about beyond the United States. And that's in part because of uh, the fact that one, this manuscript already exists and I hope will be published soon. So I have to you know cut it off somewhere. Um, but I do think that a global treatment would be really instructive. And the reason I think that is because part of how I understand the rise of the American outdoor industry in the post-World War II era has to do with American gear, uh, outdoor outfitters' relationship with Western European companies. Um, for instance, many of uh, the most well-known brands in the 1950s and 1960s in the mountaineering world, such as Hollybar, had very intimate connections with companies in Switzerland, Germany, Austria, France, and other places in Western Europe. That was in part because Alice Hollybar, who was um, the kind of brains behind the business, uh, was born in Germany and maintained contacts there and had a distant cousin who was a famous mountaineer. But also because many of the most cutting edge boots and equipment had to be imported from Europe because there were no other places making equivalent kinds of gear in the United States. I would love someone who has more of the language expertise to look at that evolution and the relationship between the European cutting edge equipment of the early 20th century and how that moved on around the world. I also think something of note for me as a historian of the United States is how important in the 21st century century, Scandinavian companies, Fjallraven is a good example of this, became to American consumers. So the um, it's not just they have great stuff, which they do, but also that there's a certain cultural resonance that companies like this have in the 21st century that is different from other areas, eras. And that's something that's really important to understand that brands aren't necessarily just selling their particular products, but also sometimes national identity and senses of belonging. And I think, again, someone who is able to do this global treatment might be able to figure out more about that. I did have the chance when I was a, a fellow at the Rachel Carson Center in Munich a few years ago to visit some of the great outdoor stores there. And they certainly have stories that I would love to tell um, in tandem with other folks. 
Um, other questions. Yeah, for Europe, see the book Invisible on Everest. I think so. Yeah, that's that's really the only book that I know of. It has um, one of its strengths is that it goes into great detail about particular kinds of products. And so it has a lot of that technology change that I say is, is so fascinating. I think many people in this audience uh, would enjoy quite a lot. Other questions? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm happy to share both my email address um, and my website where you can find a lot of my popular writings um, if you just click on the writings there. Um, in addition, though, I'm an academic, I'm a professor, and I teach U.S. history at the University of Colorado, Denver. As a part of my job, I publish academic articles, including one that recently came out um, in the journal Entreprise et Histoire, which is about the history of DIY and the kind of gendered labor behind the do-it-yourself clothing kits such as Frostline in the 1970s. Um, similarly, I've written an article for another business history journal on um, corporate sponsorships of American expeditions in the second half of the 20th century, and the role that companies like Eddie Bauer had in shaping the contracts between athletes and the corporations themselves. So um, both of those are just examples of the kind of pieces that I write in the academic space. Sometimes I think those are of interest, especially if your company shows up there. Um, but uh, in, um, in terms of what it might do for the broader audience that I know that's listening here um, this morning, um, these academic style articles can be useful for understanding what could historians do with access to your archives. So for instance, what I mean here is um, you might have noted what particular product showed up in that uh, table of contents for the book that's coming out next year. I talk about later Hosen in the middle of the 20th century, about Gore-Tex. Folks ask, what about this product? What about this thing that was so important during this time? And nearly always they're speaking from great expertise when they ask me these kinds of questions and knowledge of a particular product and its importance, which I really welcome. However, the way we do our work, we can only write about what is archived, recorded, accessible in some way. In other words, it mattered a whole lot that I had access to the um, Gore corporate archives in Delaware to be able to tell the story of this particular synthetic, which is not the synthetic of the 1970s and 80s and beyond, but rather just one good example of it. But that was a company that opened its door to me in looking at uh, uh, company records. Similarly, I'm able to write about um, a company like L.L. Bean, which does not open its archives to uh, academics um, using uh, published materials. Uh, but there's a limit to what I can say about kind of what goes on behind the scenes, of course, from that. And so um, the uh, the shape of the research that I do and what you'll be able to see from these academic uh, articles that I've written, as well as the popular ones, highlight what access allows a historian to do with the material. I'm very rarely um, going to be, do a takedown. I, I love the outdoor industry. And part of what I want to do is recover histories that haven't been told yet. Um, but I can only do that um, with access. And, and that's what I think you'll see in, in the materials that I've written. Uh, could you speak to how big box, big box like Walmart and strategy more or less compete based on price facilitated a strategy that has conditioned special, even especially consumer to prefer price over value. Um, I don't know that I can specifically. I think, again, this has to do with the kind of documents I have access to. Um, I very rarely, even when companies uh, maintain records that they're willing to let me go see it. And this is less often about <laughs> going to a formal archive with materials in boxes and on shelves. And often I've, I've been ushered into warehouses to look at a bin of stuff like just binders piled up. Um, what's not included there is usually um, uh, 
looking at the margins of something like independent specialty retailers, right? More often, I see public-facing materials like catalogs or newsletters, or sometimes materials from company founders or owners. I think it's really valuable for business historians to be able to access financial data and then to be able to answer questions like the one that you, Chuck, just asked. But it's um, far more unlikely to be able to do that. And I often take cues from my colleagues who've written about other industries to understand how to get at those kinds of questions, which I haven't yet for the big box era, um, though I would like to, um, when I don't have access to it immediately. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.